This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Imagine you're on a beautiful desert island. You've unplugged from the digital world. No cell phone, no Twitter, no Facebook, no radio, and no TV. You can only take with you five books. Which five books would you choose and why? These are the questions we're asking the faculty on Season 3 of Office Hours. Joining us on the island today is the Reverend Mr. John Bales, Library Director at Westminster Seminary, California. He was featured in the February 2nd, 2011 episode of Office Hours, where you can meet him there and learn a little more about him. Hi, John, and welcome to the island. Hey, thanks for having me, Scott. I appreciate it. So there you are on a cruise, the ship crashes, cracks up, and you managed to float safely to a desert island. And we're stipulating for all the faculty that you've already got your English Bible, your Greek Testament, your Hebrew Bible, and your Aramaic, if you wanted, and your and your Septuagint. And so beyond those, in your watertight, floatable suitcase, what did you pack? And uh, what are you going to be reading while you're waiting to be rescued? Right. I think I've got five books And uh, the first one is Augustine's Confessions. Augustine is a natural because he's a massive figure in church history. His theology is formative for Protestants and, of course, for Catholics as well. But his doctrines have had uh, a lasting imprint upon the church. And his Confessions in particular is a unique genre. It's, uh, It's an autobiography, and yet it's also directed to God in certain sections. And so it's a prayerful autobiography. It's penned by a man who saturated his mind with God's Word. And in particular with the confessions, he saturated his mind with the Psalms. In fact, uh, one scholar has said that the confessions is an amplified Psalter. And so here we have this man who is reflecting honestly about his life. He's genuinely writing about who he was and who he is, and he's, he's completely honest. He tells us his life and how God worked in his life to bring him to a point of understanding his grace. So there are prayerful meditations on Scripture, and they're just beautiful. They're deeply spiritual and deeply personal. When did you first read the Confessions? First read them in college. And then uh, again in seminary, and I've picked it up from time to time, just keep reading it, because it would be considered something of the monastic theology, not a scholastic. So it's that older, ancient type of theology where it's directed actually to God. It's not just thinking about God, but directed to God. Is there a particular place in the Confessions that you found particularly affecting or, or moving? Obviously, that first page, the first book, is so powerful, and it's often quoted, but not just the the quote that's often mentioned by people about resting in God, but uh, several paragraphs in, uh, Augustine writes, Those who look for the Lord will cry out in praise of him, because all who look for him shall find him, and when they find him, they will praise him. And then he switches again to this personal where he directs it to God. I shall look for you, Lord, by praying to you. And as I pray, I shall believe in you because we have had preachers to tell us about you. It is my faith that calls to you, Lord, the faith which you gave me and made to live in me through the merits of your son who became man and through the ministry of your preacher. If we didn't know when that was written, we might think that that was written at a much later point. 
because that's, uh, that's the way that Reformed people often speak about those very issues. If the listener is interested in this volume, it's available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. All right. So, and, and as a librarian, I have to say that there are several really accessible um, <laughs> editions available. You've got the Penguin one, which is uh, R.S. Pinecoffin. Uh, Henry Chadwick has a translation, beautiful. And then, of course, there's the new Augustinian series as well. So lots of available translations. Can you tell us a little bit about that new series? Just to say that they continue to work through the series. It's not complete yet. Augustine, as I mentioned, is massive in his work. And so there's uh, a lot of attention done. There's commentary involved with the translations. It's done by respected scholars. It's an excellent series. Of course, it costs more because it's a larger set and uh, hardbound, but there are easily accessible and readable translations that are available. The series title is The Works of St. Augustine, a translation for the 21st century. And the Confessions are volume one in that series. Great. What is the second volume that you want with you on the desert island while you're waiting to be rescued? Basking in the sun, in the shade, gentle breezes, nice palm tree. Well, just like the Confessions probably wouldn't be a surprise, uh, this next one wouldn't be a surprise either. It's John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Here you have this pastor who was faced with spiritual doubts. He was embroiled in controversies. He was imprisoned. And he uses the metaphor of a race to portray the Christian life. And in this, he admonishes his readers to begin that race promptly, to cast off all your encumbrances and to shun distractions and to fight off fatigue. And that allegory captured my imagination again early on in college and has continued to have an impression upon me as I pick it up and read it. There are a lot of editions of Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Do you have a favorite? Again, uh, the Penguin series, easily accessible, paperback, not expensive, but the translation by Roger Sherrock, I think that's how you'd pronounce his name, is the best. And there are others available. I think they're probably fine, but that's the best one. What is it about Pilgrim's Progress particularly? Or is there a character in Pilgrim's Progress with which you identify particularly? I think there's a lot of characters that you're drawn into. When I've ever used this uh, book in my illustrations and preaching, it's amazing. People will always come up to me afterwards and say, I really liked that when you talked about Pilgrim's Progress and you used that character. It helped me to identify. And it's just amazing how people have uh, identified with the characters. I tend to like the story of Christian, and he's walking with Hopeful, and then they get sidetracked, and they're thrown in the dungeon, and they're in trouble, and they're beginning to doubt, and then they're encouraged to pray. And so they, as they're praying, they're reminded by God of the fact that they have the promise, which is the key to get them out of the dungeon, the promise of the gospel. And so they take that out of their bosom, it says, and they're able to get out of this dungeon. So there's a, a good, strong gospel content in Pilgrim's Progress. It's not merely an interior journey. It's an allegory of the Christian life that is really clearly and firmly grounded in the work of Christ for his people. Absolutely. So it's had an enduring effect on me and obviously many, many people. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Why do you think Pilgrim's Progress holds up? I mean, there, there were a lot of works written at about the same period as Pilgrim's Progress. Why do people keep coming back to it? It's a good question. 
I'm not sure if I have an answer for it except to say Bunyan even realized that it was a popular work. It was already going through a lot of different editions even while he was still alive. And so he knew that it had some kind of a quality to it. But I think the fact that he based it again largely on Scripture. Here was a guy who had saturated his mind with the Bible and understood the Christian life in a biblical way. And so I think it's the fact that it's so connected with the Bible that it has that enduring quality. And our language is full of references, allusions to Pilgrim's Progress. Your third choice. This one might be a a little surprising to some, but I wanted to have one that was, I thought, maybe a little surprising. And that would be Jonathan Edwards' The End for Which God Created the World. I know that Edwards is controversial. He was, again, a massive thinker and writer. His uh, religious affections can be justifiably criticized for possibly leading to some subjectivism. But this work in particular, the end for which God created the world, was helpful to me to see the glory of God as the dominating theme of God's actions in Scripture. And I reread it often when I feel like I've lost a sense of my purpose in life or where we're at in society, just to realize God is sovereign and he's working all of his purposes for his glory. And it's not a selfish thing for him to do that. Again, Edwards is one of these enduring figures. And as you say, massively influential. American Christianity can hardly be understood without getting to grips with Jonathan Edwards. Whatever one thinks of him, his importance is undoubted. And his attraction, particularly in the last 20 or 30 years, has undergone a significant renaissance. There's the Jonathan Edwards Project at Yale, where they're publishing his works in a modern critical edition. And obviously, the young, restless, and reformed movement is deeply indebted to uh, Edwards. And so we can talk about a neo-Edwardsian movement that has developed in recent years and gained a lot of steam. Again, why the attraction? What is it about Edwards in in general, and then you've mentioned this work in particular, that people find so attractive in Edwards? I can't speak for other people, but I can say a couple of things for me in terms of Edwards that makes him attractive. One is the fact that he is highly intellectual, and he is dealing with the movement of the Enlightenment and secularism that are pressing upon Christianity in his time, and he takes a very Reformed approach. Again, we would not agree with every one of his answers in response apologetically to the secular movement of his time for Locke and others who were writing against the Orthodox Christian teachings, but Edwards at least was engaging them, and I think that's one of the things. We're we're looking for Reformed thinkers who are engaging the thoughts and attitudes of this world. And the other thing is that he is spiritual in his response. He is not simply saying, "Here's, here's the doctrinal response, but he does it with the sense of having passion for God, and I think that that's attractive. People don't want just straight answers. They want somebody who's passionate about those answers as well. There's a devotional quality to it. Absolutely. And don't you think, too, in Edwards, there's a certain kind of honesty that you don't always find, which would connect it with your earlier choice. And Bunyan, too, I think, that running through all three of these volumes is a common theme of a kind of honesty about the Christian life and struggles and and difficulties and so forth, and a quest for assurance. Right. And just to be able to provide answers, some of the early Reformed thinkers were not engaging themselves in some of these questions. These are questions that developed later on, and 
Edwards was trying to address them. Again, we may not be satisfied with some of his answers, but at least he was trying to engage these questions, questions about the freedom of the will. That I had to read that in a seminary, and of course, it's like a labyrinth in some ways, trying to work your way through that. But some people believe that that's one of the best reforms responses to the question of God's sovereignty and, and man's freedom of will. What's your fourth volume? You've kept yourself very busy over the time that you've been on the island. You've read Augustine's Confessions, you've reread it, you've reread Munyon's Pilgrim's Progress and Edwards, and he will occupy any thoughtful person for a considerable period of time. But what's next? The next would be someone from my own Dutch Reformed tradition. That would be Abraham Kuyper. I chose Kuyper. Again, we have this person who was an incredible thinker, active in society in many ways, we don't have to review his history to know that this this man was influential in his time and continues to be influential. But the work that I chose was to be near unto God. Again, it's a devotional work, but I'm thinking if I'm on the desert island, I want to remain connected to God, and I want to think how other people, how other great Christians were thinking and feeling as they meditated on Scripture. And that's what to be near unto God is. It's 110 meditations on Scripture. And One of the quotes that I have always liked about Kuiper, and this is something you're going to see this theme as I picked Augustine and Bunyan and Edwards, Kuiper said in the preface to that work, stress in creedal confession without drinking of these waters. And when he talked about these waters, he talked about meditating on God's word. So stress in creedal confession without drinking of these waters runs dry in barren orthodoxy. Just as truly as spiritual emotion without clearness in confessional standards makes one sink in the bog of sickly mysticism. So Kuiper was holding up this balance between we need to have orthodox confessional standards and we need to maintain those. But at the same time, he said, we have to have a devotion and a love of God from the scriptures. And those two are not incompatible, that they can work together. And he was trying to hold them together as he presented these meditations. And in fact, they do mutually reinforce each other. I mean, without a sound biblical doctrine of justification, one's sense of assurance and even awareness of the presence of God may be either lacking or malformed or misinformed. And a proper, strong doctrine of justification gives you a way of of relating to God so that not one of fear, but one of confidence and boldness for the sake of Christ. Your piety and your theology are integrally connected and mutually reinforcing one another. And Kuiper certainly knew that and was a prolific writer of devotional works. As of this discussion, we have in the bookstore The Practice of Godliness by Abraham Kuiper. And by the time this broadcast airs, we'll be sure to get some copies of To Be Near to God, too, for the listener. Tell us just briefly a little bit about Kuiper's life in case the listener isn't familiar. Uh, I'd almost have to lean on you for some of that. But, you know, he was a, a professor. He, he So he was academic. He taught and he wrote major works theologically, but he was also involved with his country as a statesman. He was the prime minister, and I think he functioned in other ways too, but so he had this... He was a new, newspaper editor. He edited yes. and published two different newspapers, sort of a general news, public, civil affairs paper, and an ecclesiastical paper, a more expressly religious paper. He was uh, a member of parliament and then eventually prime minister and then a backbencher in parliament. He was a theological professor. He was a pastor. He was a fellow who was, as a young man, somewhat influenced by the then dominant liberal theology in the Netherlands, was challenged 
by, as the story goes, the godly little old lady who basically said to him, I don't think you're a Christian. And Kuiper underwent a, a sort of conversion experience, became a conservative, confessional, reformed minister. And so his life was almost unthinkably industrious, so much so that he more than once had nervous breakdowns and actually found himself needing to check himself into hospital so that he could rest and recuperate. Frankly, if any one of us had done just some of the things that Kuiper did, edited two newspapers, that would be pretty remarkable. Or if any of us had founded a university, that would be remarkable. If any of us had been uh, a member of parliament and prime minister, that would be remarkable. Or an outstanding minister and theologian, that would be remarkable. But you find in Kuiper all of those things in one life. It's pretty extraordinary. It really is. You said the word remarkable, and that's the word that came to my mind, too. Just an absolutely remarkable man. And yet he, he was connected to God and he understood the Christian life is not just a life, but it's a life based on a doctrine. And that doctrine needed to be orthodox and confessional, but it had to be a life as well. In the beginning, God said, let there be, and there was. God the Father created through his word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God the Son is the Word. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. God the Spirit works through the preaching of the Word. For 31 years, Westminster Seminary, California has stood for the truth and reliability of God's Word. Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu, 760-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. Can you think off the top of your head of a particularly outstanding biography of Kuiper? I have published, if it's not posted yet, on the faculty blog, there will be one where I include in a biography section where I make a recommendation on that. There's really two of them, and one's a little bit more scholarly, one's a little bit more popular. But to look for that on the faculty blog. And you can find that at wscal.edu slash blog, B-L-O-G. Great. I think maybe off in the distance I can see a rescue ship coming, but it's moving slowly and we've got plenty of time. And we're on an island. It's relaxed. So what's your fifth volume that you're going to read while you're waiting to be rescued? One of my other favorite authors is Alexander White. And, of course, he's known to have written Lord Teach Us to Pray. He wrote a commentary on Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress called Bunyan's Characters, where he describes the characters. It's really a marvelous work. He also wrote a book called The Bible Characters. He was a free Church of Scotland minister. He was also the principal of New College Edinburgh. So he was, a again, a remarkable Scottish pastor. But the work that I would want to take with me on the desert island would be The Walk, conversation and character of Jesus Christ. Our understanding of the Bible is Christological. We look to Christ. He is preeminent in all things. And White looks at the person of Christ, and he preaches Christ, and he shows us that the way that we really can come to understand Jesus Christ is through preaching. And so here is this collection of sermons on the walk and the conversation and the character of Jesus Christ, and he shows us the preciousness of Jesus. This is Alexander White, W-H-Y-T-E, born in 1836, died 1921, and the volume is The Walk, Conversation, and Character of Jesus Christ Our Lord. 
What was it in particular that drew you and that uh, affected you? Well, I started with White when I was reading Bunyan's characters. I obviously reading Pilgrim's Progress and, and wanting to read and understand the progress more. So I was reading Bunyan's characters by White. And then I realized he had this volume on Jesus Christ. And I read it and was simply impressed by how White preached the simplicity of Jesus Christ and showed him as Savior and Lord, demonstrated his preeminence overall. It's just a older style, so it's not a complicated reading. It's very straightforward and simple. Here is Jesus Christ. He is amazing. How has White affected your own preaching? I think just with what I was saying, that we need to preach Christ and him crucified, but to preach the simplicity of Christ, not to get complicated. Christ is presented in the scriptures in a way for people to understand, and by the work of the Holy Spirit, he can be understood by ordinary people. And so to preach the simplicity of Christ, this is what I came away with from White, but to understand how precious he truly is. Sometimes Reformed folk are described as if they were blockheaded, stubborn, or overly intellectual. As I'm looking through the list of volumes, some of these are weighty, significant, and and even challenging volumes, and others perhaps less so. Even weighty, certainly, but maybe not as intellectually challenging. What do you say to someone who's considering Reformed Christianity and maybe a little hesitant because they're afraid it might be a little too intellectual? I would refer them simply back to Kuiper. I think this is one of the errors of modern evangelicalism is to say you can either have a confessional orthodox teaching or you can have a warm devotion to Christ, but you can't have both. And that's simply not true. And Kuiper was someone as well as any of these other authors that I suggested who held together the fact that you need to maintain your Christian walk based upon sound Christian Orthodox teaching as it's expressed in the confessions. But that doesn't have to be the end. The confessions will lead forth then into a a life of piety and as the Holy Spirit works in your life into a life of holiness. And those two things are not mutually exclusive. There's a coherence involved with them as we expressed earlier in the show. So I would say you don't have to sacrifice those things and that they work together and that if you separate the two, as Kuiper said, you end up with some really bad heresies. Since you're a librarian and a good part of your working life and your avocational life is taken up with the printed word, let's talk about the future of books. Few of our faculty are probably as well positioned to talk about that as as you are. I recently got an iPad, and so I'm doing some reading on that, reading, downloading popular things, and, and I mainly read my news now on screen. And some people have been suggesting for a number of years that computers and the iPad being one of those signals the beginning of the end of the printed word. What do you think about that? That's a good question, Scott. A lot of people are asking that same question, and librarians in particular are asking that question. I just wrote a review article for the Modern Reformation. I hope that they do print it. This is my plug for them to print that, by the way. But uh, it's a review article of the book called The Case for Books by Robert Darnton, who is the librarian at Harvard. Harvard, and he makes a wonderful case for the fact that, yes, uh, there are electronic devices and technology being developed that we can use to read books electronically, and he is all in favor of that, but he says at the same time, there's a value to having the printed book, the printed word, and that books will not become obsolete, that they will always be a part of us. He makes the point that whenever there have been technological changes, the old technology doesn't always go away. 
and certainly not right away, that they continue on. You know, he says that the Internet did not wipe out TV and TVs continue on and television and movies and so forth. And, and so his point is, is that they will probably work together, that there will be Kindles and ebook readers and people will continue to transition to them. But he says there will always be a place for the printed word. And he gives several compelling reasons why that will be the case. And you'd have to read the book for that. But my point would be, yeah, electronic devices are increasing, but he makes the point that book sales continue to rise every year. And so people continue to read books, and I don't think they're going away. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. The author is Robert Darnton, D-A-R-N-T-O-N, and the title is The Case for Books, Past, Present, and Future. And it's available in a variety of formats, including uh, electronic format. So that would be maybe somewhat ironic, reading Darnton's book about books in defense of books on your iPad or, or your Kindle. We hope the thing wouldn't explode. Finally, just a little bit about the value of the of the printed word and the value of reading. One of the jobs of a librarian, I think now, is to convince students whose first instinct may be to go to the Internet, to darken the door of a library, to go in. Can you give, in, in just a few minutes, a tour? What are the three great rooms of the library? Well, the first room that you would want to go to if you're, for instance, writing a paper or doing research is the reference room. You've got all the reference works. So you've got dictionary articles, encyclopedia articles, which include oftentimes uh, bibliographic essays that would point you the way to do some kind of research. So there's Not all of which is available online, right? Some of this stuff really only is found between covers in, in printed works. That's right. And in fact, that's one of the points Darnton makes. He says that, yeah, Google is trying to have this lofty goal of digitizing all the books in the world. But he says, will they really ever get to it? Probably not. So there's always going to be a need for libraries. There are always going to be works that are not going to be digitized. And certainly with the kind of specific works that we're looking at, religious books, uh, Protestantism, they're not always going to be digitized. So that's a good place to start. So if you're beginning a piece of research, you want to find out something about something, the first place you really want to go is to the reference room. And any serious library, any library of any significance will always have a reference room, a collection of dictionaries, encyclopedias, and the like. What's the second great room in a library? The stacks. This is where you find the the heart and soul, so to speak, of uh, where the books are. And the wonderful thing, again, about a library, about a place where there's a, a physical collection of printed books, is that you can look for a particular book and then serendipitously find other books in that subject right along with it and can lead you to some other amazing works. So the stacks would be the second area. And then the third area would, of course, be the periodical room. So you've got journals. And again, uh, here we have a situation where you have to pay a lot of times for these electronic journals, but libraries hold these printed journal articles, and they're much more accessible uh, sometimes. And I'm not disdaining electronic articles at all. Uh, in fact, it's just been a, a boon for researchers like yourself and others who are writing and reading. Just a tremendous asset for a library. But not all journal articles are accessible. And again, we're talking about the incredibly rising cost of periodicals. And so th those become prohibitive. There's all kinds of obstacles in the way. So there's always going to be a need for periodicals and periodical room would be the place for that. But of the three rooms, probably the periodical room is the one that's probably most liable 
to be transformed by digital publishing because it's, by definition, occasional literature and a little bit ephemeral, transitory. Journal articles have a limited, most journal articles have a limited shelf life for a limited period of value. As scholarship goes on, they may become a little dated and, and they get referenced and cited in footnotes as earlier literature, but it's not then the cutting edge scholarship. But the reference room in the stacks certainly we'll always have with us. One last thing. It struck me as you were describing the three great rooms of the library that many college students and seminary students probably come to us now with the assumption that if something is of value, it will be online. And I'm of the generation, and you may be too, that we were probably raised with a very different assumption. If anything is of real value, it will be put into print. So we really are facing a kind of culture clash. How are you finding that clash as you're trying to communicate the value of a library to young people who are coming, sometimes not having spent much time at all in libraries as they come to us? Well, you're right. I think a lot of students today approach the idea of research, just as you mentioned, they will go to the internet first, they will go to Google. And one of the things that I tell them in the class that I teach is that Google is a commercial search engine. So it's not always going to give you the best information available. And it has a purpose. And it certainly can be a place to do some research, but it's not the first place you go to. It's certainly not. And one of the top places you go to, there are other places where you can find more beneficial information And that's why you would want to begin in uh, places like the reference room or even possibly doing uh, searches through databases. But Google itself is not the best place to start. And the only way that you can communicate that to students is to just actually have them physically do research as they begin to do their work. They get their hands on books and they're reading and they're seeing that, yeah, this is where it's at, that Google is not the answer. It can be a part of the answer, but it's not the answer to how one would do good research. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.